mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on On Air, we will only be talking about chapter one of this book. It's five pages. And it introduces us to the themes of class patriarchy, rage, abuse, trauma, isolation, social protest, gaslighting, agency, beauty, and feminism in five pages. We open the text, and I think as a young reader, we fall in love with Jane Eyre because it opens with the scene of reading. That's Roxanne Eberly, associate professor and associate head of English at the University of Georgia. It opens with the scene of her reading a book, holding a book, hiding herself to read. So it speaks to every reader that picks up that book because we're our bodies in the same position that her body's in, right? But the thing that we forget is that she's a writer. She's not just a reader. She's a writer. She's crafting this narrative, this autobiography to make us fall in love with her. I think that's the great love story of Jane Eyre. We're seduced by Jane. We fall in love with Jane. I think that's the love story that matters, not not her in Rochester. Jane, when we meet her, is 10 years old. She has been living with her Aunt Reed and her cousins since before she can remember. Her parents died when she was a baby, and her uncle, the only person in the house who loved her, is also dead. We meet her on what starts out as an ordinary day. She's been on a walk in the morning with her cousins. She's been fed. And now she hides from the rest of her family because isolation is better than anything else on offer. Her cousin, John Reed, is 14. He's recently been sent home from school because, essentially, he can't play nicely with others. John Reed lives to torment Jane. When she sits behind a curtain to read a book from the house's library, he tells her, You have no business to take our books. You are a dependent, Mama says. You have no money. Your father left you none. You ought to beg and not to live here with gentlemen's children like us and eat the same meals we do and wear clothes at our Mama's expense. Now, I'll teach you to rummage my bookshelves, for they are mine. All the house belongs to me, or will do in a few years. He then has her go stand by the window and hits her on the head with the book. Her head bleeds from the blow. This incident does not seem out of the ordinary for Jane. For her whole life, she has been degraded and abused. She's not hugged or touched by anyone. The servants are told that she is a rung beneath them on the social ladder. 
as an orphan and as a girl, she is seen as nothing but a drain on the house resources. She isn't lighthearted and fun like all little orphans should be. She doesn't even have the decency to be pretty. The day we meet her, the reason her story starts on this day is because it is the day she starts to fight back. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. So Lauren, I have treated Jane Eyre as sacred for seven years and I have loved it for... I have to do the math on how old I am. Oh, my God. For 25 years. What is your relationship with Jane Eyre? I first read Jane Eyre as a young teenager and then as an English student at Barnard and then studying Victorian literature in London and then in my 30s and now I'm in my 40s and reading it again. And every single time there are different things that infuriate me and there are different things that I fall in love with that I didn't even notice before. And I'm really excited to see what it's going to be this time. I also find this book infuriating, but I feel like you and I love infuriating things as infuriating women. We should be advocating for people loving infuriating things. No? Yes, I agree. It's actually Jane's lack of being overtly infuriating that often is what (laughs) that totally turns me off. Right. So when I have really wrestled with this book, it's around questions of moralism and prudishness. And I think as I get older, I understand the structures that force her to live as she lives and act as she acts. And You know, I always just want her to set the whole thing on fire. But of course, as we will discover, she can't just do that. So much of what you just said is exactly why I want you on this podcast, because I got this book for my 14th birthday and my mom got it for her 14th birthday, actually from a beloved teacher of hers. She was at boarding school at the time and a teacher gave this to her and was like, I think you might love this book because my mom felt very isolated and lonely. And this teacher brilliantly thought that Jane Eyre would keep her company. And now you and I both have these young women in our lives who are 13. And so the question for me is, is this a book I want to hand to my stepdaughter. Like, I know I'm going to want her to read it eventually. I don't want to cancel this book in any way. The question is, is like, do I want to hand it to her at 14 and have it form her in the way that I believe I was formed by it? You know, what's really interesting that I just heard a couple days ago is I ran into someone who's an English teacher at Spence, which is a girl's school in New York City, an independent school. And she just told me that they're taking Jane Eyre out of the curriculum. And so I think that this question that we are asking is one that we are both personally wrestling with. And obviously, there are much larger cultural questions in play here. But it is something that people are actually thinking about right now. Do we give this book to our girls or do we not? Yeah. And it's such a live question. And so the things we're going to be doing in this podcast is tracing where the power is and where the desire is, because we think that those are two good ways to sort of question the ethics of this book, right? Who is the power? Where is power being questioned? Who wants what? And are their wants fair and consensually met and honored? And I think that those two framings will help us decide 
this question. And I, I feel like there's a lot at stake in this question. I'm wondering if that feels true for you. Because to some extent, this is like a 200-year-old book. Who cares if it's on a syllabus anymore? Except this is the power of great literature is, I think, especially when it hits at the heart of questions of power and desire, it can live forever. And I think that this is this is the measure of why things last, right? We, we don't want to just be reading and thinking and feeling material that is contemporary with us. That would be, to me, such a short-sighted way to live when there's so much incredible work that has come before. And yet we know that that work was not created in a vacuum. So how do we think about the context of the writing, the context of the reading, and how it relates to what we think about today and perhaps what we should have always been thinking about all along? Which is an argument for why I want to keep this book, right? Like as antiquated and flawed as it is, I think that it speaks to so many true things that are perniciously still relevant today. And I want us to be keenly aware of the fact that even though it's been almost 200 years, we have moved so little in so many ways. But we'll figure out if I still feel that way (laughs) after we sort of really look closely at the text. So let's jump in. Chapter one, Lauren, what do you think that people need to know about this chapter before we talk about power and desire in the chapter? Well, it's all there in that quote from John Reed. That is the entire class structure in Victorian England as it relates to gender. Everything is based on male inheritance, the family line. That might as well be the state. That is the power structure that Jane was born into as an orphan soon after her birth and as a girl, most of all. So that abject powerlessness, the person who does not get to inherit Gateshead, the person who does not get to have power in a family, the person who does not get to have a named identity, which will give her agency and comfort in the world. That is the whole power structure that Bronte is fighting. Without a family, Jane has nothing. And all conventional social norms, the economy, health and safety, all of the elements of a secure life were based on the family. She's not even allowed to read a book. It's true. And I would say it's shockingly and and not shockingly not all that different now, right? The exponential game of inherited wealth, what it means to be born into a family that doesn't own real estate in 2021, that doesn't earn a living wage, etc. All of this may feel antiquated and historic, but in many ways, we haven't come that far. I mean, and all of that is clear from the very beginning. The book starts in this completely overwhelmingly brilliant way of there was no possibility of taking a walk that day. So not only is Jane an orphan and a girl who's not even allowed to use the books on the shelves that are in the house where she lives, the weather has conspired that she is extra trapped that day. And I think that within that notion of feeling trapped, historically, there are other levels, too. There's there's this question of what it meant for women to walk at all. You know, women couldn't walk alone in England in the Victorian era. They were considered 
to be whores or beggars if someone would see them out on the road by themselves. And so it's not like Jane can just go take a walk by herself. She has to walk with this family that she can't stand with these people who bully her and tease her and disregard her. And so any possibility for freedom is just it's it doesn't exist at all. And I feel like that element is such a brilliant way to start this book. And the walk that she usually gets is like a leashed walk that's like just enough to get her tired enough to behave, right? It's not a free walk, the kind that we know that Charlotte Bronte went on with her sisters. Even the walk is a system of oppression. Vanessa, will you tell us about the walks that Bronte went on with her sisters? Yeah, Charlotte Bronte was this great walker. And, you know, she would go walking with her two sisters, Emily and Anne in Haworth. And part of it is that they would be sent on errands for their father. Their father had a huge perish in terms of the circumference of the land that he was covering. He didn't have a lot of parishioners, but his parish was physically large. And so they would like deliver letters and would walk 20 miles in a day in order to do that. Emily was known as the great walker, but she would often convince her sisters to go with her. And it was this time of talking. And I think also of just like getting out of the scrutiny of others, right? There was like no patriarchal gaze upon them while they were on their walks, the three of them. Even that isn't true for Jean, right? Like her walks, the one that she has no possibility of taking that day, even her walks aren't that free kind of walk that that Charlotte knew so well in her life. It feels like Mrs. Reed, the, the matriarchal aunt figure, is just sending them out to like have them out of the house and have some quiet. It's not even really about the kids. At least it doesn't feel that way. Which I imagine she would do on a daily basis, right? There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We assume this is how things go in that house. However, that day is where this book begins. And I love this brief sentence that ends on those two sound syllables, that day. We know that something is going to happen that is going to change life before that day and life after it. I wonder if Camus was a Bronte fan, because it reminds me of, you know, the beginning of L'Etranger, The Stranger, where he begins the book with Mother Died Today. And it's like, okay, you know that that day is going to separate life before and life after. And then the other thing that happens on this day, and this is just a paragraph or two later, is that all of these structures are being closed off for her. The physical space that she's allowed to inhabit gets smaller and smaller. She's not allowed to go outside, right? Like the biggest space she's allowed to inhabit is walking the grounds of Gateshead, the mansion that she lives in. And she's not allowed to do that. And then all of the kids are sort of snuggling with Mrs. Reed, with the other cousin's mother and Jane's aunt. And she is sent out of that room. Mrs. Reed says, I can't pay any attention to you. You are just too unpleasant to look at. And I don't like it when you ask me questions. Go away. And so Jane goes away. She goes into another room and she gets a book and she crawls up into this space like in a, a window seat behind a curtain. And then John Reed comes and looks for her there. And it just feels so malicious and intentional to like move her into a smaller and smaller place. And then by the end of the chapter, she's being locked up. They are just like sweeping her up into this corner throughout this chapter. 
You know, the thing that Mrs. Reed does within all of this bad parenting that I consider to be really sinister. I mean, obviously sending Jane away saying you can't snuggle with us on the sofa by the fireside. That's just abuse. That's horrible. But the way that she does it, she says, I regret the necessity of keeping you at a distance, Jane. Like there's some accepted law like, oh, it pains her to be so abusive. It pains her to drive Jane away, but it's not up to her. Like it's the state, right? Which puts Jane in this position where if it was just Mrs. Reed saying, I can't stand the sight of you, she could fight back. But the notion that there is some superstructure in play here, that there's some larger force that Mrs. Reed is beholden to, Jane has nothing to fight against. It's too massive. She can't fight the state. She can't fight Mrs. Reed because it's not up to Mrs. Reed, except it is. And there's something about this that that evokes so many things that I have seen in my own reporting of how we treat marginalized people in our system today, this notion of it's just the tax structure. It's just the policy. It's just the way things are, and it's terrible. But we have no option except to live under this inequality. We've no option except to banish people. This is the convention of our world, and we can't see another way around it. And the powerlessness that Jane feels is something that is so familiar to me, having witnessed other people feel powerless in this way in my journalism, as though it's just too massive to fight. So what can you do except try to survive, to hide? And these are the power structures that we were talking about that we wanted to explore in this book. And the other place that I see it, Mrs. Reed says, I got a bad report from Bessie about your behavior. Bessie being this maid who sort of serves the kids. And I always took that at face value and took it as confusing when in chapters two and three, which we'll read next week, Bessie sort of turns on a dime and starts being nice to Jane. I was like, oh, that's so strange that Bessie starts being nice to Jane. And then I was like, oh my God, Mrs. Reed is lying to Jane. And it is this further on the Stasi level of like, there are always spies on you and they are giving me reports on you. And I heard not just from my children that you didn't behave, but also from Bessie that you didn't behave. So Mrs. Reed is like creating a break between even Bessie and Jane, Bessie being the person who's supposed to be taking care of Jane. It's really this breaking down Jane and trying to entirely break her spirit. Like the one person who's sometimes kind to you, she tattles on you. I guess I wonder if Mrs. Reed is trying to break Jane, if her resentment for Jane is so deep, or if she just can't stand being around her and she knows it's too awful to say, I can't stand the sight of you. You bum me out. My kids don't like you. You're a total drag. You're not even, as you put it, Vanessa, pretty. Your personality itself is a burden. I think that many of us in our sort of more paranoid moments might feel, especially from the perspective of being 10 years old, but 
Lord knows I've continued to feel this way at times for (laughs) decades since, that feeling of, oh, they just hate me. They just can't stand being around me. And feeling that sort of rage and injustice that's connected to that shame. And I think that's part of what Bronte does so brilliantly is she brings us into that experience so quickly so that we just feel how awful it is to be that kid. We've all been that kid. And do you really think it comes down to she doesn't like Jane? I mean, Jane says it later, like friends forget those whom fortune forsakes, right? Like, I think that we as a society just have a distaste for people who are unlucky. I think it's true, but I think it's worth remembering that Mrs. Reed is also unlucky in her own way. Her husband died. She lives in a patriarchal society without a husband. She has very little power, even though she has some financial comfort. As John Reed, her, you know, incompetent, obnoxious 14-year-old son says quite rightfully, he is the master of the house. And he's not anyone who draws any confidence, right? Mrs. Reed isn't going to feel like, I'm going to be fine because John's going to take care of things. He's a total fuck up. (laughs) And so she is here widowed, alone, stuck with these kids. One of them is awful. Another one she can't even stand and needs to take responsibility for. I think it's a drag being Mrs. Reed. Yeah, it's a really good point. She's in part kissing up to John because she eventually will need him. So let's actually look at John Reed and the tone that he sets as like, quote unquote, master of the house at 14. We know as objectively as Bronte's going to give us that John is an idiot. He's been kicked out of school after school. That is why he's home. He's supposed to be away at school, but he couldn't hack it. And so in contrast to John, I mean, let's look at Jane, who's brilliant and who is quoting history to him, who's curled up with a book at every single second. I think that Jane's intelligence is very intimidating to him. So there's John, who's this classic bully, and Jane is his target. And that is the situation that she is trapped in. Like, there's nowhere to run to. And he chases her down, right? He hunts her down. He makes up lies about her. He says, I'm going to tell mom that she ran out into the cold, even though she wasn't allowed to, because she's a bad animal. I mean, it's all of this gaslighting and all of this slander when all Jane is trying to do is read Barrick's history of birds curled up on the seat, which incidentally, I love this, just in May, there was this lost library of Bronte books that was being auctioned at Sotheby's and Bronte's father had this exact book, had Barrick's History of Birds, and it was one of the books that was being auctioned. So I love that Jane is writing from her own library and from her own childhood. I also love, if you can indulge a little aside here, that, you know, it's a British history of birds that she's reading. And so birds, this was, you know, very common in the 60s, less so today, but it's for a long time been used as slang for girls, right? And for, you know, chicks, for which chicks. are kind of birds. Exactly. And I was curious if that was something that would have resonated with readers in Bronte's age. So I did a little research, by which I mean 
I Googled it (laughs) and found out that the word bird was used as slang for chicks, for gals, all the way back then. And I love that Bronte's giving us this little wink where she's saying that what Jane is reading is not just a history of fowl, although that would also be a pun, but a history of women in Britain. And that is exactly where she is stuck. I love it. And if it's a history of women and John Reed is trying to say, no, no, I own it. I just feel like it's all the more powerful. Totally. I own it and I'm going to beat you with it. (laughs) I'm going to trounce you with this book that you were just trying to edify yourself with, that you were trying to escape with. Ugh, he's the worst. He is the worst. And Jane describes it, right? He bullied me and punished me not two or three times in the week, but continually. And I have had relationships with men and there is just something about me that they hate. And I remember being Jane's age and one of my dad's friends just hated me. And looking back at 10, I really liked saying things like, well, as a feminist, right? And so I, looking back, can see from his point of view why he found me obnoxious But also he was like a 50-year-old man who was aggressively spiteful and demeaning and horrible to me. And I mean, my only theory on it is that men who are also victims of patriarchy, men who are taught that they should have power, like nothing offends them more than a woman who they feel as though they cannot control. And John Reed, like he keeps trying to control her and she is uncontrollable. Right. But I feel like we are all victims of this patriarchy and of this framing because it reminds me of how when we call girls precocious, girls like Jane, girls like you, Vanessa, girls like me, probably many of the people who are listening right now, that is seen as as a put down, as a distancing, right? A precocious girl is someone who is often suspect. I mean, it's a term that I have owned for myself with some pride and I've labeled my daughter precocious with some pride, but I'm also aware that precocious girls are are not likable girls necessarily. And Jane is just the very model of a precocious girl. The way that she tells John that he's a tyrant is by putting it within the context of Roman history. She tells him that he's like the Roman emperors. He's like Nero. And of course, he has no idea what she's talking (laughs) about. And she's completely right. And she's brilliant for it. And it's part of why I, as a formerly precocious girl and now precocious woman, relate so much to her is like, you know, I have this perfect comeback and you're not even going to get the reference. I think that that is why this attack from John Reed like haunts me so much is because he wanted to be able to assault her in a room and then he couldn't find her. And it feels like that annoyed him on a new level or he wanted her to have run off outside so that he could tattle on her. He he just wants to be able to control her and he can't. And she's saying these things that he can't understand 
And I'm just trying to understand within patriarchy and ownership why that is so offensive to people with power. Well, I think he feels totally threatened by her ability to sit and read a book. It is the thing that he has failed at. The way that he has shamed his family is being kicked out of school over and over because he can't do that. And she does it effortlessly. So I think he's completely threatened by her. Yeah. And there's this feeling of almost like she's showing off and she is so clueless as to what it could be that is upsetting him, that she's just like instigating him into this rage by existing. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So this question of power that we're wrestling with, Bronte just charges right at in the first pages of this book. And I I just I'd love to talk about this a little bit, because one of the things that John Reed does, which it makes me so furious, is that he insists that Jane calls him master, which as we will see, is something that becomes eroticized for an older Jane. But at the moment, she's still just 10. And she has this bully of a cousin insisting that she call him master. He says that he is the master of the house and she needs to address him as such. And it is so appalling to me. It's so appalling. And it's this other great historic moment. The book is taking place, at least this part of the book is taking place right at the beginning of the 1800s or maybe around 1810, 1815. And this is right after the Slave Trade Act has passed in Britain. And so they are, they're not ending the owning of slaves, but they are ending the triangle trade and like their ability to buy and sell slaves. And they are in conversation in a meaningful way about whether or not the wealth of English people should be born on the backs of the slave trade, as so much of the wealth in England was at the time. And you can even imagine Mrs. Reed, like it says in the opening paragraph, Mrs. Reed, when she had no guests, dined early, which implies that there are fairly regular guests at Gateshead. And so you can just imagine that these kinds of conversations about slavery are happening at the Gateshead table about whether or not It's okay to own people and to get wealthy off of that. And so Jane is creating some like historic context for that, saying the Roman emperors own slaves. And she's sort of having a political opinion about the moment, right, of you are treating me like a slave and that is horrible and wrong and slavery is immoral. And so I feel like Jane begins that argument for us by making a historic claim, right, of like 
There have always been slaves. There's still slaves. You are treating me like a slave. And I think that we are invited to see ourselves in that like linear argument that she is making. And of course, she's not actually a slave. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what I think she's doing here is pairing injustice with slavery, which is a really significant claim in the context of that day, because there were plenty of people who felt like it was completely just to colonize and build an empire on slave labor. But Clearly, Bronte doesn't feel that way because it is the strongest way that Jane can express injustice and how aggrieved and unseen and unfairly treated she is. So, Lauren, the other question we have is where is desire in these books? So what are the desires in this chapter? I feel like so much of that answer is contained in that first sentence, that feeling of being trapped and wanting to be released and released on her own terms, right? All she wants is out. She wants out of this house. She wants out of this family. She wants out of her poverty. She wants out of being bullied and being unseen. She wants to escape the trap that she is in. And I think that's why she goes right to the bookshelves, right? I think that so many of us, you know, our bookish kids, we would find our escape in the pages of books. We would find our escape in entering other worlds and other lives, very much the way one might escape into Jane Eyre as a reader. And I think that it is the book that gives her her truest form of escape. She imagines landscapes, which are so exotic to her and far from where she is right now. And that is part of what John Reed takes away from her is the ability to soar over the fjords of Norway or to navigate Iceland, you know, as a winged creature. And I think that that's that's part of what she really wants is out. The other thing that struck me on this reading is that she also wants to be seen, which she's hiding. So I think that it wasn't obvious to me, but she has several comments about how even when Mrs. Reed was in the room, Mrs. Reed didn't see, quote unquote, that John was hitting her and the servants never saw that he was hitting her. She wants her experience to be noted. And I think what I love about that desire is that we know it gets realized in that this is, quote unquote, Jane Eyre, not a biography. Jane Eyre is writing this story. And so eventually that desire comes true. She she does survive all of this and she does write the story. And so we are realizing that desire, even though no one in this chapter is. And twining together are two questions about power and desire. I think that what she wants is power. And what we know she's going to gain eventually is the power to tell her own story, the power to see herself and present herself so that we can see her. And I think that there's a justice in that. I think that one of the other things that she desires as 10-year-old Jane is an end to this injustice, an ability to fight back and be recognized as a fighter, which, of course, we're going to see in the next chapter. But there is her own fight for justice, which I think is so intrinsic to her finding her own power and her living within her own desire. 
Yeah. And that's why, you know, the book starts on this day, right? There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. And this is the day that she starts to fight back. This is the day where for whatever reason, that history of women or history of birds book hits her on the head and she's bleeding from the skull. And it's just no more. I will be ignored no more. I will live under your power no more. And she attacks him back. And she attacks him back in such a big way. No one in the house can pretend it didn't happen. And in fact, it takes four hands to restrain her, right? The beginning of the chapter is there was no possibility of taking a walk that day. The last sentence of the chapter is four hands were immediately laid upon me and I was born upstairs, right? She's 10. She's like a tiny little girl. And it takes four hands to restrain her. And I feel like she just does this unignorable gesture. Right. And they say, have you ever seen such a passion? Right. I mean, you were just so rightfully talking about how unseen she was. And now they see her. Her passion makes sure that they can't ignore her anymore. Now they've seen Jane. Okay, Lauren, there is one other sentence that I really want us to pay close attention to because I don't even know how many times I've read this book. And for some reason, this only hit me for the first time this reading. So we we meet Bessie. And Bessie, like I said, is this like sort of governess, child, nursemaid character. And Jane tells us that Bessie sometimes narrated on winter evenings stories And then she says, quote, while she got up Mrs. Reed's lace frills and crimped her nightcap borders, Bessie fed our eager attention with passages of love and adventure taken from old fairy tales and older ballads, or as at a later period I discovered from the pages of Pamela, which is like the first novel slash romance novel written in English or is often considered to be. And so I love this idea that Bessie is reading Pamela or has had the story told to her, is telling Jane this romantic story and that we realize that later Jane reads Pamela and is like, oh my God, that's the story Bessie was telling me as a kid. And I just love that the other thing that's being passed down, right? This slave narrative is being passed down. This like fighting narrative is being passed down. And also this like love of romance novels is being passed down. It's so funny to me that you think of Pamela as a romance novel because I see it as like the original Me Too text, right? I think it was written at the time to be a romance novel and that now we see it as like an abomination and about consent. Okay, but it is also foreshadowing so much of what is going to be difficult about Jane Eyre, right? It is a story about a young maidservant whose much older employer falls in love with her and chases her around the mansion, (laughs) harassing her to no end until she relents and becomes his bride. And she's struggling with this. And of course, this is so much of what this book is about to become. So our question of like, and therefore, should we pass this book on? Jane Eyre is arguing Pamela got passed on to Jane 
and then Jane is going to live a version of Pamela. And so I think that that could be an argument either way for us either passing this book on that like there's this great tradition of women passing novels on to other women and them living their lives in conversation with those books. And maybe Jane Eyre is an answer to Pamela where Jane actually falls in love with Rochester before he starts pursuing her. And some of the power and the desire is flipped from Jane Eyre to Pamela. And so Jane Eyre, the novel, is arguing that we can take these previous novels and sort of improve ourselves in conversation with them. Or it's saying Pamela installed some buttons in Jane, the character, and so she was fated to be taken advantage of by the master of the house that she ended up serving in. Totally. Obviously, Bronte was such a critical thinker that she's she's telling us how to read this book in the future, it almost feels. She's thinking back to Pamela, which was written in 1740, so 100 years before this book was written, and saying, okay, what happens if it's not a story about assault? What happens if it's a story about desire? Where where does the power exist in that relationship? What happens mm-hmm. if you really want it? And how can we look back to Pamela and think of it as, okay, this is a story of predation. This isn't a story of love. And take it somewhere different that can actually own the complications of love and desire and power. And so then I think it's incumbent upon us to take Jane all these years into the future and think, how do we feel about this? How do we feel about all of these elements of the story that as Jane gets older, we're going to need to wrestle with together? Well, that is hopefully exactly what we're doing in this podcast. And right, like the question is just the thing that I'm concerned about is the way that the things that we critically read sort of like subversively resist their critical reading and maybe work on us in ways that we can't control anyway. Well, exactly. So did Jane Eyre fall for Rochester if she hasn't been told the story of Pamela at age 10? And do we develop our own relationships to power because we have had Jane Eyre in our past, not just as something to critically engage with, but because like great literature, it gets inside us. It frames us. It frames who we want to be and what we want to feel. Okay, so next week we're reading chapters two and three, and we will continue this conversation. Vanessa, what are you excited about in chapters two and three? What can we look forward to? (laughs) I mean, we have the Red Room in chapter two, which is the famous room that I feel like feminists have been reading and rereading through so many different lenses. Jane gets like locked up and tied down. And then we have this like male savior who comes in. And begins the process of getting Jane out. I don't know if I'm looking forward to it. I'm so worried that it is not going to hold up this like red room that like some people say symbolizes menstruation as Jane becomes a woman and this like white male savior who comes in and like rescues her. I'm worried (laughs) that it's not going to hold up, but we'll see. What about you? What are you looking forward to? I am looking forward to talking about The Red Room because I have always felt like it has been oversold as a major moment in literature. So maybe we can tear into that a little bit next time. Okay, it's such a weird chapter. I'm so excited.
Before we end today's episode, I couldn't stop thinking about this history of British birds thing that I brought up earlier. So I asked my friend Ellie Williams if she'd be willing to talk to me about it. Ellie is a writer whose first novel, The Liar's Dictionary, came out last year and was revered in the Times and across the map. It was just nominated for some huge award in England. But the reason I really want to talk to Ellie is because The Liar's Dictionary is a story about language that bridges current day England with 19th century England. And I think she might have more information than I do. So let's get her on the phone. Hi, Ellie. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us, am am I just imagining a world of Bronte readers in the 19th century who just know that this is a wink, the history of British birds as, you know, a history of English women, of British lasses? No, I think you've really put your finger on something there. Um, the word bird has been used as a as a synonym for, for women, uh, for maidens, for girls, um, since about, well, the first evidence for it is uh, in writing is from the uh, 15th century. And we've got examples of it in Shakespeare. We've got it in Walter Scott. It became a bit more associated with a kind of promiscuity, a kind of slang word, as we tip into the 19th century. But certainly it was um, bird was used as a word for for women and young women in particular, certainly when um, Bronte was was writing. In fact, bird spelt B-U-R-D rather than B-I-R-D has been in use even earlier than that. So lots of birds will be up in the air for the grasping um, when Bronte was was reading. So I think definitely you you might you might be onto something there. I love that you brought up promiscuity. I mean, in general, but specifically around this story, because one of the things that we are thinking about through this whole season is the relationship between power and desire. And as we will find as we read through the book, how sexual desire, how you know, romantic passion is perceived by others and how women are branded in a way and need to fear and guard against different public perception is, of course, such an emerging theme in this book as it was in the 19th century in England, and I would say still today. Yeah, and I think actually in terms of birds in the novel, um, Jane is described by Rochester as the frozen bird at one point. He's, uh, she's described as a caged bird as well. Um, while the names she has for him, you know, he's he's compared to another man as, as being like a falcon compared to a goose, uh, that he is this kind of proud and powerful engine of a bird in her metaphor. While his metaphors for her are about enclosure often and about the stilling or, or, or hunted bird. So definitely I think that in terms of the power dynamics, the the bird metaphors that are flocking around the book are very much part of that. Nicely done there, the flocking. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Ellie, I think of you as one of the funnier people I know and of a writer of deeply comic literature. I often wonder if when we read a book like Jane Eyre, if we forget to look for the winks, if we forget to see how much fun she's having alongside all of the trauma, do you read Bronte and think there's a lot more zip in here than than the reputation allows? I think that's a fascinating question because I think she's, uh, all of the Brontes are often aligned with 
passion and repression and, and rage that, that goes with that. But I think there is also that dark humour, the kind of creepy cousins that are malingering are not caricatures, but portraits, comedic portraits of real psychologies and, and messes of human beings. And keeping with birds, the fact that Buick's book at one point is thrown at young Jane Eyre. Something about a book about birds being thrown through the air and kind of tracing an arc towards her. Yes, it's about the abuse that is being meted out against this young woman, which is dreadful. But that choice of the bird book, I think, again, there is a, there is a very dark and wry humour that Bronte is, is exhibiting there. Oh, absolutely. I love that. And I can't wait to keep seeking out those moments where Bronte's maybe having a little bit more fun with us than we might expect. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me. Um, really enjoyed the program. Thank you. You've been listening to On Air. We are a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered. If you love the show, please review us on iTunes. And if you don't love the show, please keep your reviews to yourself. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Molly Baxter. Our music is by Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thank you to Justin Lane for reading the John Reed quote at the top of the episode. To Roxanne Eberly and Ellie Williams for talking to us. Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Molly Baxter, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Talk to you about periods next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com